I invite you to turn to Psalm chapter 9, and we um, are going to take probably a couple of weeks here, uh, not just because it's 20 verses, because it's really uh, about 38 verses. Uh, chapter 9 and 10 really form a single psalm. In some Bibles, you will find them as a single psalm, and that messes up our numeration from there on. Uh, and so uh, if you go into a, a, a Orthodox, uh, whether it be the Greek, any of the Eastern Orthodox churches, um, they will have these combined. Um, and so there, when you turn to Psalm 30, it's there 29 and things like that. Once you get past these two chapters, the rest of them fall in line together, but this is the aberration. We can see some evidence of that because we have uh, indication that there is a pause um, at the end of this chapter, and then we find no uh, designation beginning of chapter 10. Do you see that there is no uh, title or thing, and, and the pattern thus far has for that to be included. Now, not every psalm is going to have that, but in this section of psalms, in this book, we have actually have the, actually the book of psalms is divided into other books, uh, a sub subdivision. And so in this section, we would have that for every psalm as you have seen here uh, throughout them. And so that's another indication that this is likely one psalm. And then the content itself uh, calls us to it. And so we're going to kind of handle 9 and 10 together. Uh, it may be two or it may be three weeks. Depending on how far I can get in chapter 9 today. Um, but we'll be getting uh, hopefully at least two-thirds of the way through it. Um, and maybe a little farther and then looking next week to finish 9, get into 10, and see if I can finish 10 next week, or if it'll take a third week. I'm struggling to know how to pace myself in this, and I'll know a lot more in about 40 minutes. Right? So we want to look into this. Um, and again, I want to, uh, I'm going to be reading out of the New King James, with the exception, oh, I hope so, I hope I brought it. I wrote it down, and then I must have left it right where I wrote it. All right, well, I'm going to try I think I remembered it now. All right, so the beginning of this would be, would read, uh, for the end, regarding the mysteries of the Son, uh, a Psalm of David. And the Son is not S-U-N, but S-O-N, the Son. He goes on, I will praise you, O Lord, with my whole heart. I will tell of all your marvelous works. I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they shall fall and perish at your presence, for you have maintained my right and my cause. You sat on the throne judging in righteousness. You have rebuked the nations. You have destroyed the wicked. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. O enemy, Destructions are finished forever, and you have destroyed cities. Even their memory has perished. But the Lord shall endure forever. He has prepared his throne for judgment. He shall judge the world in righteousness, and he shall administer judgment for the peoples in uprightness. The Lord will also will be a refuge for the oppressed, a refuge in the times of trouble. And those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who dwells in Zion, declares deeds among the people. When he avenges blood, he remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the humble. 
Have mercy on me, O Lord. Consider my trouble from those who hate me. You who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may tell of all your praise in the gates of the daughter of Zion, I will rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk down in the pit which they made. In the net which they hid, their own foot is caught. The Lord is known by the judgment he executes. The wicked is snared in a work of his own hands. Meditation, Selah. The wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten. The expectation of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, do not let man prevail. Let the nations be judged in your sight. Put them in fear, O Lord, that the nations may know themselves to be but men. Selah. Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide in times of trouble? The wicked is in his pride, persecutes the poor. Let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. For the wicked boasts of his heart's desire. He blesses the greedy and renounces the Lord. The wicked in his proud countenance does not seek God. God is in none of his thoughts. His ways are always per- prospering. Your judgments are far above, out of his sight. As for all his enemies, he sneers at them. He has said in his heart, I shall not be moved. I shall never be in adversity. His mouth is full of cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue is trouble and iniquity. He sits in the lurking places of the villages. In the secret places, he murders the innocent. His eyes are secretly fixed on the helpless. He lies in wait secretly as a lion in his den. He lies in wait to catch the poor. He catches the poor when he draws him into his net. So he crouches. He lies low that the helpless may fall by his strength. He has said in his heart, God has forgotten. He hides his face. He will never see. Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. Do not forget the humble. Why do the wicked renounce God? He has said in his heart, you will not require an account. Though you have seen, for you observe trouble and grief. To repay it by your hand, the helpless commits himself to you. You are the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and the evil man. Seek out his wickedness until you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations have perished out of his hand. Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will prepare their heart. You will cause their ear to hear, to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, that the man of the earth may oppress no more. A very powerful psalm, psalms in our case, uh, that brings forth some things that we, this is one of those psalms where we're, Not sure we're allowed to be excited about because of some very serious matters involved here in this psalm where we are looking uh, across time and across the circumstances that we see around us and we are bringing this before the Lord with a sort of tension between praising the Lord and rejoicing in Him as we see at the beginning of the psalm and then imploring things of the Lord that we would like this to take effect as soon as possible and we want God to listen to hear us. And then concluding this, we're really going back to recognizing that we should be praising the Lord. We should be rejoicing and reflecting upon that, but also with that tension still there that, uh, there, that we need to see God's action in place. The psalm is, is built in a, the, the structure of it is built very differently than what we'll see, than we, we have seen, and what we will see in, in many instances. Uh, many times we'll find the psalmist reflecting upon the history of either his own experience or that of Israel. He might go back to 
the exodus. He might go back to a, a victory of, uh, or a struggle. And out of God's deliverance from those events, out of God's working of those, we have an opportunity to sing praises as we have meditated upon that element of God historically. So we can look back. And so today, we would historically look back at Christ's resurrection and say, oh, we have every cause to rejoice um, because of the power of the resurrection, all it means, the victory over sin, over death, and all that it supplies for us. And that would be appropriate. And there are many, many psalms of that nature. And so it'd be easy to kind of come to this and expect something similar to that. And, but we struggle because of some of the tenses and some of the, the nature of what he's describing. We say, well, that's not happened. God hasn't really done that uh, to, at this point yet. And so why are we singing about it when it hasn't occurred? And, and so this is a very different kind of psalm because we're really going to go to the future and work our way backwards. We're going to go to where the, what is the conclusion, how God is going to end everything and what he has promised, and so what, and if God has promised that it is secure, we know it will happen. There is no doubt about it. Uh, and so we have that confidence that this is the plan of God. This is what he has declared in his word. This is in keeping with who he is and how he works, the principles that he has taught us. And so we have this future expectation. And so uh, we're going to handle that, uh, but we're going to do it in the past tense because, again, uh, the perspective of the psalm is almost to go way in the future and then turn around and look backwards and see it going back to the day of the psalmist himself. And so we're going from this day of final judgment and working our way back to the psalmist. And that is a, a very interesting perspective to take uh, to look at rejoicing in God that he is not dull, that he is not unobservant, that he is not asleep, uh, but that there is uh, an end in sight and there is going to be some activity prior to that end that's going to be miserable. There is some evidence of that today, but there is deliverance along the way as God will preserve his people as he cares about the fatherless, the widows, the poor, the, 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 the humble and all of those are going to be kept by God in his mercy, even in the midst of all of this, with an expectation that judgment will come. And that as the humble, as the poor, as the, those in misery, as, as the fathers and widows, cry, as the oppressed cry out to God, he is reserving that. He is, he is listening. He is attentive to that, even if his judgment isn't immediate. We have that confidence, and we're going to be, again, linking this to uh, the prayers of the saints, in, of the martyrs in heaven, because some of this is, is obviously projected there. Well, when you go back to the, when you go to the future, and we turn around and look at the history of the world historically, as if we were already at the end, uh, we recognize that the event in the midst of that is the work of Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross. You cannot miss that. And so we include this psalm. Uh, you won't see it in many places, but, but enough places you'll find this psalm included as a messianic psalm. 
And so the son he's talking about is not uh, the loss of his son. Uh, some have tried to attach it to a historical event in David's life. But this, we, we just can't find evidence of that in the text. That's really conjecture trying to deal with the title. And so we have here uh, to the tune of death of the son, but it, the, word, the, really, the, the, the topic of being the mysteries of the son, and of course for the end, and Jesus Christ the beginning, the end, the alpha, the omega, uh, we are seeing it to him uh, regarding the mystery that, that is what his work will entail. That we recognize that while Jesus Christ will come to save, right? He's going to come as our Savior. He's going to come to die for us. He loves us. But we also hopefully log in our mind that as he has made this path, as through his death, burial, and resurrection, he has made a way for God that to reject that way has consequences. And so Jesus Christ, who at this point is that one who saves, at that point, if we are way over here at the end of time, at the end of this age, and looking back and seeing his judgments completed, the nations destroyed, we go, well, that was just. That was a just. Why? Because of Christ. And so we're seeing Christ not only as Savior, but as judge of all the earth. And so we have that perspective shared here in a messianic psalm, but it comes from a strange place. It doesn't come from uh, looking forward to his death. Uh, we have psalms like that, and those are usually easily identified as messianic psalms, uh, and we have already looked at some of that, uh, and they'll be quoted extensively. But here we have a very different perspective. And so let's take a look at it. We'll tear in, that's the introduction really into this, and so we get our mind around what we're seeing. You'll see themes and statements, uh, sometimes even rep, 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 uh, repeated you know, from chapter 9, chapter 10, begin, because we're dealing really with the same psalm and the same content and really the same themes here. And so uh, we begin, verse 1, it says, I will praise you, O Lord, with my whole heart. I will tell of all your marvelous I will be glad and rejoice in you. I'll sing praise to your name, O Most High. And so we come to this and we say, well, that sounds like a future thing. Uh, but remember, at the end, as we turn around, we are in the condition of praising God. And that will be our joy and our expectation for the balance of our days is that I will praise you. That we, if we begin this psalm at the end, at the end of time, what do you anticipate to be your activity when you arrive in heaven? I hope it kind of is summarized by these verses. This is what I expect to do. I'm going to praise you because all of your marvelous works because I'm here at the end of time, look, or not the end of time, but the end of this age, of, of this world, and I'm looking back and I'm saying, wow, how marvelous are all your works. And we have an opportunity to have a perspective of where history is completed. In terms of earth history, of this earth, until there's a new heaven, when there's a new heaven and a new earth, but we have, with my whole heart now, I can praise you, I'm gonna, we're going to rehearse or tell of all your marvelous works. We'll be glad and rejoice in you. I'll sing praises to your name, almost high. And we'll be in his presence. We'll sing his praises. And as we meditate on this, as we contemplate this, uh, what will it be like at that end? We think that somehow we will, a modern concept is that somehow we can't enjoy that if we 
are aware that God has judged the earth or that there is a continuing judgment in the lake of fire. And that is just contrary to the concept of who God is in terms of his righteousness and holiness. Uh, we won't be ignorant of it. We won't, God won't wipe our memories of those kinds of things because that is just. And his justice, his role as judgment, um, as well as his role as Savior and Redeemer, Deliverer, are equally uh, uh, worthy of glory. And hence, to obliterate our memory of this, because maybe some people that we were related to on earth are in judgment, uh, well, they rejected your Savior. And you are now redefined. And, and maybe we should do what some cultures have done, that when they get saved, they take on a new name. They do a name change. When they get saved, when they become followers of Jesus Christ, they put on a new name. Many times that's in cultures where their name is attributed to the gods of their old life, and so they'll put up, take on a whole new identity because now they're followers of Jesus Christ. That's really not a bad practice, is it? Because it's a reminder now that I am more related to my brethren in Christ throughout the earth than I am to these who may have a physical lineage connected to me, but physical lineage is not as substantial as our spiritual lineage. For that has made me a new creature. Uh, and so from a perspective of that, no, I don't need my memory swiped, uh, wiped, sorry. I don't need my memory wiped so that I can enjoy heaven. No, they have rejected Jesus Christ. He is my Lord, my King, my Savior, my friend, my brother. He, all those things, and, and we have a relationship with him and reflecting upon all of his work, both his redemptive work and his work of judgment should lead us to this conclusion. I will praise you always. And I will do it with all my heart, without reservation, without uh, misgiving, without regret. None of that. I will praise you with my whole heart. I'm going to tell, I'm going to rehearse or tell all of your marvelous works, not just some of them, not just one category of them, but all of them. And we're going to see that reflected in, these, in this psalm. Uh, where we are going to talk about him as judge and the severity of that judgment. We're going to see that it was deserved. Uh, we're going to see all of that. And then we're going to see that all through this, God does do redemptive work. He is loving. He is gracious and merciful, even while he's judging and storing up his wrath, if you will. And so seeing his praises will be our future. We will be glad. We will rejoice in him. Um, even after the complete destruction of the earth, and maybe particularly after that. After all, that is not only because of God's holiness being defiled, it's not only because it is a, a rejection of him and oppressed a rebellion against him, it is also we who have been defiled. It is we who have been oppressed. It is we who have been, who that, anger and that rage of man against God has been directed towards his people. And so, yes, we can be glad in the day of judgment as the victims of these, uh, but also as ones who have been uh, redeemed, have been given the righteousness of Christ, we can now walk in his righteousness and his truth and appreciate not only the rightness of his judgment, but the necessity of it. 
And so all these things, can you be glad and rejoice meditating on God as judge? Yes. But not so much today. Um, it's hard today to, to do that, frankly. Because we're on this side. The judgment really hasn't come. If I'm the, on the side of judgment, and that judgment hasn't been put on me, if I'm on this far end of his, where all of the judgments are completed, we're not even talking about the rapture. We're talking about even after the seven years of God's wrath being poured out, after the destruction of, of the earth through fervent heat, as Peter talks about, when we're way over here, uh, enjoying the new heaven, new earth, and we're looking back and go, oh, yes, I'm glad God judged. Well, it's hard to do that today, isn't it? Because judgment is coming, and what should be our attitude? Well, there should be a fearful expectation. There, there's a kind of a, a little uh, fearfulness. I want to make sure that I am not caught in that judgment. And there is a certain sense of, of necessity. I need to keep walking. I need to be faithful. Am I a true believer? And all these kinds of things. Not doubt, but rather uh, recognition that that judgment to come is a fearful thing. And if it's going on around me, uh, you know, I, I could, it could influence, it could affect me. The judgment on Judah uh, was determined by prophetic declaration for those who were confronting that, even the righteous in Judah, who weren't going to be destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar in the three waves of, of uh, conquering that he did there. Uh, uh, men like Daniel and, and his friends, those that are carried off into Babylon, um, what's going to happen to us as God judges everything else? There's a certain sense of fearfulness, but also of, I don't want to be caught in that judgment. I want to be preserved from that. And so there is an expectation and there is a commitment to saying, I need to keep walking the Lord. And so there is a, a fearfulness. But if you're on the other side of it and God is done judging, and now you're getting to walk into His presence in, in your permanent state of blessing, and judgment is finished, well, now I can rejoice and be glad in it. I can look back because He has preserved me through it. I was not caught up in it. I was not destroyed by it. My faith has been perfected, um, and it was found to be sufficiently placed in Jesus Christ, and now I am enjoying my blessed state. Now I can look back and say, oh, that was such a wonderful, you know, God judged perfectly. Um, and so we have that opportunity. So yes, you can be glad and rejoice. In fact, I would contend that your gladness and joy will only be perfect on the other side of judgment. And now we're going to look at it. And so what is our perspective in verse 3 and following? When my enemies turn back, they shall fall and perish in your presence. For you have maintained my right, my right and my cause. You sat on the throne judging in righteousness. You have rebuked the nations. You have destroyed the wicked. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. Obviously, this hasn't happened yet. Not only did it not happen in David's day, it hasn't happened in our day yet. Jesus Christ has not come as judge and blotted out the nations yet forever and ever. Is it coming? Absolutely. It is our future. This is what's going to be happening. When it happens, um, God will be faithful and He will be just and He will continue. Let's keep reading. It says, 
Oh, enemy destructions are finished forever. Well, obviously that's not happened yet, right? So we are we have leapt into the future on the other side of judgment. We look back and we said, "Wow, God has judged the nations. They're they're destroyed forever and ever." We look and we we've, he, God has sat on the throne judging in righteousness, and He has identified our rightness that that our cause was just because we walked in His truth, we trusted in His Son, and we are in this this condition of blessing. We look in now. We see what he has done to the nations, and our conclusion is that they have fallen, they have, they have perished, God's presence has come uh, into their midst. And again, we're looking backwards, so if we're at the end looking backwards, our condition of praise, what precedes it, is judgment. It is judgment of the nations, it is judgment of the Gentiles. Some of your texts might have Gentiles there, other nations, but it is the judgment upon them. That God and it's and it's God on His throne, not as Redeemer, but as Judge. He is there defending our cause. He is there exercising that avenging of the blood of the saints. He is ex, he is there exercising uh, His His punishment upon their rebellion. He is He has poured it out upon them, all the while maintaining and caring for those who were in him, in his righteousness. And, and even to the point he says their memory has perished. And so you have destroyed them. And we go if we go to the book of Revelation, we can see this very thing happening. That God is going to take the nations and destroy them. The nations are personified. They are, they are in, symbolically in Revelation through the image of a beast. And Revelation 13 and the and the uh, secondary beast and and we find it again described for us later on in the book and then finally at the end we say we find at the very end that in addition to Satan being cast in the lake of fire we find the beast being cast in the lake of the nations themselves are destroyed forever and ever their memory's gone and we sing glory hallelujah when we are on the other side of that and we are in our condition of blessedness we look back and say. Wow, God has done his judgment. He has, he has destroyed them. He has uh, obliterated their name forever. And it's completed. Their memory has perished. The Lord, it says in verse, th- verse 7, but the Lord shall endure forever. He's prepared his judgment for th- his, judge- his throne for judgment, sorry. He shall judge the world in righteousness. He shall minister judgment for the peoples in uprightness. And so we come to the, if we're looking backwards or working our way backwards, it seems like, well, why is he preparing his throne when it says in the previous verses that he has just destroyed everything? Well, because we're working our way back through history. Even though that history isn't history yet, not even to us. And so what does God do prior to Judging, he prepares for judgment, correct? So he has to establish his throne. Jesus Christ gets on the throne to judge. And again, I think we're working our way backwards through the book of Revelation. And we're going to go even farther back than that, but we're going to work our way all the way to to the day of David himself. But he sees God at work, and now he sees God, the preparations. But look, 
not only is God preparing to judge the world in righteousness, he will administer, shall administer judgment for the peoples in uprightness. Please notice that there's something else going on. This is as God is preparing to judge, prepared his throne for judgment. Uh, he's going to judge, he shall judge. Now we're going to the future, so we're coming back here, and we're, he shall administer judgment. We're looking for that. We're getting closer to our day. And now we find in verse 9, the Lord also will be a refuge for the oppressed, a refuge in times of trouble. What do we anticipate at the end of the church age? We'll anticipate exactly these words, times of trouble. Does that sound familiar to you? It should because Jesus taught it, didn't he? There will be trouble such as never been seen. There's going to be all this trouble on the earth um, and that they're going to be hunting you down. There are going to be times of trouble and God will have to be your refuge that we trust God to preserve us, to carry us in these days, troubling days. And so while God is preparing himself for judgment, preparing his throne for judgment, he is doing something else for his people, and that is he is providing them a refuge, a place of escape. Now we can see this is a principle that God has done all the way along. Um, in 70 AD, we had the fall of Jerusalem, but in 67 AD, of course, we have the first assault on Jerusalem, 66 really, 66 AD, we have the assault upon Jerusalem, and then there's a respite. There's a little window of opportunity, and the Christians vacated Jerusalem. So that when it fell under the Roman things in, in 87, there really wasn't any Christians in Jerusalem anymore. And that's why Christianity didn't really lose its leadership then, uh, because they heeded Jesus' statement. says, when you see these things, run. Get out of there. Find, get to your places of refuge places of deliverance, and the Christians did that. And God gave them that little window of opportunity um, to do that in the midst of, or really at the very beginning of the siege on Jerusalem in 66 AD. And so we, we find all of this and, and laid out kind of like this. So God will not forsake the oppressed. He will be our refuge in times of trouble. Those who know your name will put your, their trust in you, for you, Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. God will not forsake us. Even as he is lasered in, focused in on the wickedness of the world, which we're going to see talked about, in, in especially in Psalm 10, but also here later on Psalm 9, he's going to focus in on the sinfulness of men and their need for judgment. He has not forgotten on any measure his own people. He says, yes, I'll make you a place of refuge. I will care for you. I will deliver you. And he will not forsake us. And for us to think, well, God, we're in the... No, God has not forsaken you. No matter how wicked it gets, no matter how hard it gets for us, no matter how much uh, destruction is all around us, no matter how much uh, persecution we are undergoing, God will not forsake us. He will care for us. Now, if we're looking backwards, the first people that we find out that God has to be a refuge for are all martyred. It's the 144,000 of the first half of the seven years of God's wrath. That they have a mark upon their forehead that, that preserves them. They are the ones that don't get affected by 
the uh, uh, judgments of God throughout the days of wrath, and we find them having a haven, a refuge. And certainly though we find them slain, they need resurrection before the end of that. And so we, we see that, but in terms of their ministry and their responsibilities and their relationship with God, he has not forsaken them. And then we can go even a little bit earlier than that as we get into uh, before the rapture, will he forsake us? No, God will not forsake us no matter how much he is exercising judgment on the earth and no matter how hideous the world treats us, even to the point of, of massacring us, um, God will not forsake us. We have a confidence. Well, when can I sing about that? It's hard to sing about that right now, isn't it? Because it's still kind of in our future. It's not in our distant future, and we have some evidence of that. And certainly some of our brethren are suffering at the hands of unbelievers uh, violently. I think we're suffering uh, ignorantly of how badly we are being affected and infected by evil. Um, but when can you sing about this? When can you be glad and rejoice in this? It's a whole lot easier to do that at the other side of judgment, right? To look back and say, you know, God preserved us and we have this state of blessing that we can enjoy now, but I can look back and say, He was my refuge. He never forsook us. And the time to walk in gladness and rejoicing in that is in the future. And what the psalm directs us to is meditate a little bit on what it will be like on the other side of this age. To strengthen yourself and encourage yourself on this side of it. The psalmist needs this. David wants this. This is the mystery of the sun is the description of this, the title given to this. And again, the titles, we have, we have no text without these titles. So whoever added it, added it really, really, really early. We have no reason not to think that they were given at the very beginning. And so this is the mystery of the Son. He is the Savior, but He is also the Judge. And if you look back from our, from our relation, when we are with Him in heaven, in His presence, and we look backwards, oh, we can say, you know, God has preserved us. God never forsook us. He, will, he, will, he, he has never forsaken us. And so he, he is a refuge for the oppressed. And now I can look at that and say, uh, that's what he's going to be. Even as he's preparing to judge in the very acts of preparation. And if you want to know what those look like, you need to read like Revelation 6 and 7, well, late 6 and 7, though, especially 7, 8. Uh, getting into those where we begin in the trumpet judgments and God is preparing to judge. But what is he? He says, just because I'm preparing to judge the world doesn't mean I've forgotten about you. And that should be an encouragement to us today. God will not forsake us. Do we enjoy the contemplation of what is between here and our eternal state? No. No more than Jesus at Gethsemane was enjoying, contemplating on what it was between him and his ascension. No, he was sweating drops of blood. He was, he was trying to figure out, is there any way to avoid this? He was, he was pouring himself out to God. And so just because we know the end and work our way backwards doesn't mean that this isn't a difficult time. 
But this psalm is here to help you, to remind you that God will judge all the nations. And He will not forsake the righteous. Those who trust in Him will not be disappointed. Will it be a hard road? Yeah, we're going to see it described, especially in chapter 10. We're going to see it described that we got to go through that. Yes. But really in this, in this part of the Psalms, we're really looking at things that are still future to us when these things are going to be fulfilled. And, and we're going to come back into this. We're backing into our presence and we're getting closer. I think we're, we're starting to be mentioned here. But again, the focus here is still really on Jerusalem, as we're going to see. But we're going to jump even later on. We're going to jump to Christ here pretty soon. And so we have 10 verses, and we're backing up, and we're rejoicing in all as it says that we're going to be glad. We're going to sing praises for this. And so that that is future to us, while it is disconcerting a little bit to see those judgments, and we go, do we pray for those to happen? Yes, we absolutely do. Why? Because they are the, the completion of the work of God and is the recognition that Jesus Christ isn't just a Savior, He's also a judge. And you're going to have to face that judge. One way or another, you're going to have to face the judge, right? So we face the judge at the judgment seat of Christ and where He applies some heat to your endeavors of this life, Right? We're going to find out what endures of what you did all your days. And I'm pretty sure it has nothing to do with our bank accounts. Well, it does a little bit because if you used it to, for God's glory, uh, it has nothing to do with our outfits and our wardrobe. It has very little to do with what vehicle we're driving, with what things we built. Uh, most of that is just going to be burned up, right? It says, what will endure? What is it that endures is that which is done for the kingdom of God. That's what endures. And so even our judgment for Christ is going to be a little painful as we see, oh man, 90% of what my life was on earth just got smoked. Why? Because how did it benefit or do anything for the kingdom of God? Do you, under, do you, do you approach your occupation, your your work as doing it for the kingdom of God or are you just doing it for pay the bills? Um, God, and I'm not saying you shouldn't pay your bills, uh, but are we? But what is the primary motivation? Am I there to serve the kingdom of God in that capacity by being a testimony, by being taking care of my family, by wanting to share Christ there, by trying to be that influence there? Is that my purpose to be there or is it just to enrich myself and, and that's why get-rich schemes and of the world uh, just shouldn't appeal to Christians. Because that's not our purpose. That all just burns up. It's what can I, how can I minister the kingdom of God in this earth so that the, my, the work of my hands and the, uh, the work of uh, and the words of my mouth can endure the judgment seat of Christ. So judgment is in our future. And that should concern us. Not that God will forsake us, but we have God as our judge. And then, of course, the nations will be judged by God. And that is the great white throne judgment that we find. So we have two different seats, and that is where the books are open and, other, and where they are judged. And, and 
pretty much everyone not found written in the book of life is cast in the lake of fire. And so they will all be judged in that fashion. So Jesus' judge should not be very far from our worship as Jesus' Savior. The Bible does not separate those very far away from one another. Um, Time-wise, we could say, well, they're separated by uh, a couple thousand years. Um, but the Bible doesn't distinguish that in terms of it is that preparation of judgment. And the Bible uses a term that should startle us a little bit and concern us, and that is God stores wrath. You ever think about God storing it up? We Now, we don't think about this very often uh, when we are doing bad things, all right? So if I don't get caught, I pretty much think, well, I got away with it. I haven't been caught. Well, you can't do that with God, right? You know that. But you think, okay, I, you know, so if I'm cruising down here and I turn a corner and there's a trooper there and I'm going eight over and I let up on the pedal and, ooh, and he doesn't turn his lights. And I get down the road a couple of miles and he's out of sight. I go, oh boy, oh good. We, we missed that one. Phew. Well, there's no such thing with God. Because God says he stores up his wrath. That is, that all this wickedness being done, he stores it up. And when you think about that, um, that's a frightening thing because we humans can do that. We can store up wrath, can't we? We can let frustration, we kind of just tolerate it, tolerate it, tolerate it, right? And then here's the term I grew up using. That's the straw that broke the camel's back, right? You guys heard that expression? And we're just kind of waiting for that, aren't we? We're waiting for the straw that, that just bursts open the wrath of God. That's all we're really waiting for. And we know what that straw is, and it's the slaughter of the last martyr. And that's just it. God says, that's it. Boom. And judgment comes. He begins to pour that out upon the earth. And that's a frightening concept that all the wickedness done by men is just making God more and more determined to judge. And so his judgment when it comes is righteous. But all along that way, and, and so this storing up, this preparation of the throne of judgment, for judgment. So the throne of God is being prepared for judgment. And, and the wickedness of men is that which prepares it. It is storing up God's wrath. God is not forgetting them. They did not get away with it. It looks like that. And that's what the psalmist is going to talk about when we get into chapter 10. It looks like they got away. They even say they got away with it. Look, nobody can do me any harm. I'm, I'm immune. And boy, we see that a lot. We're going to talk a lot about that possibly even next week, getting into chapter 10. Um, but for us who are not forsaken, we also recognize God as our judge. And so we should walk in righteousness. And so now we have this 11 and 12 where we have the, again, the reminder that we should sing praises to the Lord who dwells in Zion, declares deeds among the people. And we go back and we see it connected again to verse 1 where it says, tell of all your marvelous works. So now we're going to declare his deeds among the people. 
Uh, we're going to keep doing that. At, at what juncture are we at where we are declaring his deeds among the people? Uh, telling of his marvelous works in verse 1. If, if we are looking at this from the reverse, we're in our heavenly condition. Now we're in another one. And then verse 12 tells us why. When he avenges blood, he remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the humble. So when God avenges himself, he's avenging someone's blood. Now we might say, well, this is the blood of Christ, and certainly that's uh, among them, for Christ was the first born among many brethren. Um, and we find that there is an avenging of blood uh, that is the story up of God's wrath. But notice that which precipitates it, and that is, it is the cry. He does not forget the cry of the humble. When is it that he remembers us and avenges blood? When is it that he hears that? And, and, and that really is described for us there in Revelation 6. You've heard me teach this many times. When the cry of the martyrs, how long, O Lord, until? How long, O Lord, until? How long, O Lord, until you avenge us, till you judge the earth for what they've done? How long? And when the Lord does avenge that, what is it? He is remembering their blood, but notice that they really aren't the first. They're the last. The first one is Jesus Christ. When is God going to avenge the blood of Christ, the innocent one? You know, we, we talk about what well, Christ could have called 10,000 angels as he was on the cross and brought judgment right there and there. Yes, but it didn't. And in fact, some of those who crucified our Lord, I'm convinced, became believers. When is Christ's blood going to be avenged? Now you might say, well, Jerusalem was, was judged uh, by the fall of Jerusalem over the blood of Christ, and, and because they rejected Jesus Christ, and certainly that's entailed there. Um, but ultimately, uh, from the blood of Christ, and even the blood of the prophets, and the blood of all of his people, just builds up. Think about that. Going all the way back, Hebrews takes us all the way back to the blood of Abel. That God is going to avenge the blood of His righteous, of the people. And that that is going to be, when you look at Revelation, you say, how could God do so much for so long and be so intense in His judgment? And then how can God place Him in the lake of fire? And this has been a question. How can a how can a loving God let them suffer so long for all eternity in a lake of fire, a place where the fire never is ever quenched, the worm never dies? How can they do? How can he do that? Because he has stored up his wrath for millennia of the blood spilt of his people for thousands of years. And that is what is so marvelous when someone like Saul of Tarsus gets saved. Because he has avoided the wrath that he is due. That was so marvelous when the, when the uh, Alca Indians in Ecuador got saved because they have avoided the blood of the five missionaries they spilt on the beach that day. That is the marvel of the power of the blood of Christ. But if you do not apply the blood of, the Christ, of Christ to your life, you are guilty of it. You either apply it to be the humble, 
humble yourself before and apply that blood or you're guilty. And so we have the blood of Christ, the blood of the, the, of the prophets, you have the blood of Abel, you have the blood of the martyrs, you have all of this. God says, I'm going to hear your cry. And we're going to find some psalms, we call them the imprecatory psalms, where it says, destroy my enemies, kill, you know, dash their children on the rocks. It's going to be really vivid imagery of the judgment we want. Well, why do we cry out for that judgment? Because of the hideous nature in which they have, the world has treated God's people. And God won't forget that. And we see that really played out, as I said, in in Revelation 6, where the, the, all those prayers are brought, well, the people are crying out how long. God says, just wait a little while till your number's done. The straw that breaks the cow back hasn't happened yet. But it happened between that verse and a little later on in chapter 7, when you have the breaking of the trumpets. What breaks the trumpets open? The prayers of the saints. What prayers are God, is God not listening to yet? But you still need to pray them the imprecatory psalms. We need to pray for God's judgment on wicked men, but not, but he won't hear them yet. You should still pray them. It's okay. Lord, judge them for the wickedness they are perpetrating against your people. But while you're praying those prayers, you're also saying, Lord, help me share Christ with them. You have to have that tension in your life knowing that the prayer of salvation is the prayer he hears today because today is the day of salvation, but there will be a day when those prayers for God's righteous judgment will be heard and brought forward before God, and that is recorded for us in Revelation. When are those prayers that, that move God to judge? When are they heard? They are, they are not heard until that day. And that makes complete sense. Now we have thousands of years of the cry of the humble, those who have sought refuge in Jesus Christ in God, that have walked in righteousness, have, they have pled their cause, and that is not forgotten by God. It is stored up by Him. And on that day, the day that, that precedes those seven years and then that eternity in the lake of fire, that day is initiated by the presentation of those prayers before God. So pray those prayers. But don't pray just those prayers. They have a place. But you better also be praying the prayers, Oh Lord, deliver them from their own wickedness. Well, He already has provided for them. So you're going to pray. Pray, give me an opportunity to share Christ with my enemies. Give me an opportunity to be Christ to my enemies. Give me an opportunity to keep good on those who despitefully use me. Oh, you should be praying for your enemies and you should be praying those for the enemies of the cross so you can pray. You say, oh, I can't pray both. Those are opposition prayers. No, they aren't. One won't be heard until a certain day, but they still need to be prayed. One definitely needs to be prayed because these are the ones that we want heard today to deliver men from their sin, even the wicked men that persecute us. And yeah, that puts us in a weird position, doesn't it? Because now we're like Ananias, you know, in Damascus. God, this guy came here to kill us. And you want me to go and say, bless him. Yeah. He's my man. 
Oh, he'll suffer if that gets you over your... I love that part where God tells me, he's going to suffer for my namesake, so get over yourself. <laughs> um, you can still share the gospel with him, uh, but you go to him. He's, he's my anointed. He's my instrument. He has already responded to me on the way to Damascus. Now you go and finish this encounter of his. He's blind. And all that we would see the blindness of our enemies. They're spiritually blind. And so, yes, we have a tension. We are praying for God to judge and praying for God to deliver because that's the same God and both prayers are appropriate and should be made. Please realize the imprecatory psalms are not just Old Testament psalms. They are for New Testament times too. And they should be prayed and sung and talked about but not to the neglect of the other and the expectation is God will judge the wicked to avenge our blood. But our prayer is that these people would humble themselves. We're going to see that quite opposite of the case. So what crier of the humble are we talking about? Well, we have an example of this. Oh man, I need to close. Here's the cry of the humble. Have mercy on me, O Lord. Consider my trouble from those who hate me, who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may tell them all your praise in the gates of the daughter of Zion, that's Jerusalem, and I will rejoice in your salvation. That's the cry. Consider my trouble from those who hate me. It is okay to pray this prayer, even today, but not to pray only this prayer. For today is a day of salvation, deliverance, and we are going to see that even the wicked can turn and humble themselves before the Lord. That's not the focus of this psalm at all. But it is uh, definitely that which God calls us to. And so, do you have permission to pray this prayer? Yes. But not just this prayer. But we're going to continue this in, it looks like, two weeks to come. Uh, I don't think I can get through this, the rest of this chapter and the next chapter next week unless I talk really fast. But... Um, I want to just encourage you. God is your is judge of the living and the dead. We still have this in our future, but it is sure. And so we can sing praises. He will judge to avenge our blood. He will not forsake us in the midst of all this trouble. He knows how to deal with it. You don't have to look for revenge. You don't have to avenge yourself. We don't have to avenge you. Uh, God will do a much more, much better job, a more spectacular job of it than you ever could, more complete job of it. And so we wait upon Him, and we trust in Him. We humble ourselves before Him. We cry out to Him. He is our refuge. He will not forsake us. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank You for Your love for us. As we look forward today to a time when your judgment is complete, uh, we anticipate it. But we know that there's much that transpires between this day and that day. And we pray that we might find refuge in you. That you might not forget us. We know you won't forsake us. We thank you for that promise. And Lord, we do pray for your mercy 
upon us in these troublesome times. And those that hate us without cause, hate us simply because we walk in your truth and trust in your name and bow before your throne. And they hate us for this and seek to do us injury and harm, and they do. They do harm. Lord, don't forget the evil that they do except through the power of your Son. And so we pray that even as they do that evil upon us, that we might seek their good in this age, this opportunity they have for salvation. Lord, should they not turn, we pray you would not forget the evil they have done to your creation, to your creatures, and to your people. We thank you again for this reminder for us to meditate upon that we might endure to the end. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.